0: cover king herod also next week. So what we're going to look at today, you know, King Herod is a very very interesting case study of depravity. And to a certain extent, you know, it's kind of like man it's hard to see it's kind of like Solomon. You know, we 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 look at Solomon and we're like Solomon is the wisest guy in the, in the world, but then Solomon turns around and he has 700 uh, 300 wives, 700 concubines, and he makes a lot of terrible mistakes, and he writes Ecclesiastes, and you know, Ecclesiastes is very pessimistic, and, and we're like, man, how, what happened to this guy? But then we remember, right? Well, David, how does Solomon come about? Well, David and Bathsheba, right? Well, what happens with David and Bathsheba? Who's Bathsheba? And so it's similar to this. It's not to say Solomon is not. Solomon is most very definitely responsible for his own sin, but it is to say, you know, and, and this is a good reminder for all the fathers and mothers, that with our children, right, We do, there are consequences on, on on how we behave and on how we act and on how we raise our children. So here's, here is um, King Herod, and you see this in verse 14. It says, and King Herod. Okay, first of all, King Herod is not a king. Okay, this King Herod anyways is not a king. So in the New Testament, just to make things very unclear, There are four different King Herods, four different Herods in the New Testament at certain points, and they're all different, okay? Now, this is the the Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy that that wanted to go and and kill, and, and did kill every child who was under two years old in Bethlehem. That's King, that's Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great um, was the one who built the temple, the one that that when Jesus is walking around the disciples the people are with jesus they 're all mesmerized by this great temple and Herod the Great is the one that made that Herod the Great, however, and we covered this when we were covering uh John the Baptist earlier on, but Herod the Great killed his father in law killed several of his wives, killed two of his sons, killed of course the babies in bethlehem and here's here's here 's the most monstrous part about about Herod the Great, okay? So Herod the Great, at the end of his life, he's getting sick, he knows it. He's gonna die, he knows it. But he's concerned because he realizes, hey, I'm not, I'm not the most favorite person around. Not everybody likes me. I don't have hardly anybody who likes me. In fact, when I die, I'm concerned that everybody's gonna be happy. They're gonna celebrate. And so, you know what he does? He concocts a plan where he calls all of those who, who have high reputations in the area. He calls them to come and visit him because he's on his deathbed. But the plan is, he tells the servants, okay, when they get here, when I die, the moment I die, I want you to kill all of these guys with reputations. Because when you kill them right after I die, the land's going to mourn and it's going to look like they're mourning my death, even though in reality they're mourning their death. That's how crooked this guy is. And he did that. He actually brought that about. And so from Herod... King Herod, or Herod the Great, excuse me, from Herod the Great, you have one of his sons is Herod Antipas. This is the uh, this is the son, okay? Um, sometimes you hear of Herod Antipas referred to as a tetrarch. A tetrarch just means a ruler of four, or one of the four rulers. And that's because the territory was split up into four parts, and so he was a ruler of a fourth of the territory. However... What's ironic in calling him a king, and some of the commentators pointed this out, and some people are saying, well, it's just because he was known to be a king in that in that territory he operated as a king, but poor Herod the Great or Herod Antipas was so tormented by the idea that he was not officially called a king by Rome. he was never officially named a king, so he wanted the title wasn't officially named that, and so Um, eventually in A.D. 39, so Christ is crucified, usually A.D. 30, A.D. 33, some people say, right? A.D. 39, after Christ is crucified, five years later, Herod Antipas eventually is um, dethroned, even though he's not on a throne. He's kicked out by Rome. He's exiled because his nephew, thinking of this family, it's a great family, right? So the nephew doesn't like his uncle and goes to Rome and says, hey, my uncle has a stash of weapons and he's, he's planning a revolt. And they believe this Caligula, the emperor at the time believes this because all of Herod's life, Herod Antipas's life motivated and encouraged to do so by his wife. He was, he was petitioning Rome. He was insistent that he be named a king, that Rome makes him a king and they would never do it. They didn't trust him. And so all his life, he, and then finally the nephew says, Hey, I got, I got some, 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 Some dirt on this guy. And of course, they believe it because they're like, hey, it makes sense now. He's very ambitious. He wants to be a king. He's looking to overthrow us now because we won't make him king. Yeah, let's exile him. And then eventually he died. Sad story. But here's the thing, okay? King Herod hears of something. Here's of what the gospel going for. So if you look at verse 13, what we covered last week. So remember the disciples. Last time we looked at this, the disciples are going out. They're casting out demons. They're preaching the gospel. Things are happening. They're anointing with oil, many sick people. Things are happening. And it reaches what they're doing, reaches all the way to the courts of Herod. Herod Antipas hears about it, which is encouraging for us. Because, you know, you take these disciples. These disciples are... These are fishermen. They are not of any worth or value in the eyes of society, as far as, certainly as far as like ministry goes. They, they would not be like the cream of the crop, the first pick of the litter, anything like that. But Christ turns around and sends them out, and what they're doing, the ministry they're doing, the fact that things are happening, it does reach to high places, and that's encouragement for us as Christians, right? You, you can be, be, be certain that when you're out and you're talking about Christ and you're sharing Christ, Things are happening, and things are going to things are going to be stirred at a high level. Now, it's not to say that that's like the end goal, but that's just kind of the fallout. That's what happens. People hear about it, so Herod is hearing about these rumors, these reports, and that's where we are. So he's trying to figure out, well, what's going on. Um, Herod Antipas. Also, the other thing about him to know is that he is not a friend of the Jews. All right. So when he hears about this information, he hears that. You know, his dad responds whenever they, they find out, whenever his dad finds out that, that, that there's, there's a king, there's a new king in town, and he's a king of the Jews, and the wise men come from the east, right? They come in, and, and what's his dad do? Well, his dad goes and hunts down every two-year-old and kills every one under two. How do you think Antipas is going to hear about this? How do you think, in fact, when John the Baptist is arrested, he's arrested because John the Baptist is over here um, at the Jordan River. He has a big congregation, a big following. If you read Josephus, though, the reason Antipas imprisons John the Baptist is because he's paranoid that there's going to be an uprising that kicks him out. And so he's like, all right, same thing now is happening with Jesus, right? Jesus' disciples, same thing. It's like 2.0, what he's tried to put out, it comes back. And so here you have um, Herod Antipas, one of the examples of him not being a friend to the Jew. He's more of a friend to Rome. He's more of a friend to, to Greek Hellenism and paganism as he builds his, his capital, Tiberius, on top of a pagan cemetery. Okay, so if you build your capital on top of a pagan cemetery, guess who is never going to set foot in your capital? Jewish people, because it's unclean. You would be unclean. You would never set foot. You certainly wouldn't settle there. So um, that's kind of, remember what Jesus calls this same Herod. Jesus calls him a fox. And what does a fox bring to mind? He's shrewd. He's cunning. He's malicious, right? And so that's That's kind of the the, the background. But when he hears about these disciples going out, he hears of it, and then it says this. It says, his name had become well-known. Christ's name had become well-known. And it's very, there's a lot of similarities between this passage, what we're looking at today in my mind, and what you have like in our culture today in the Western world, especially in the United States, okay? Is Jesus Christ's name well-known in the United States of America? Absolutely. I'm not asking, do ev- does everyone believe in him, right? I'm not saying, hey, is everyone in the United States Christian? No, but is his name well-known? Yes, his name is well-known in the United States. It's well-known in, in all over Europe. If you go to somebody, it doesn't matter who they are, they can be the most gnarly, hardcore atheist. Do you know anything about Jesus Christ? Well, of course I know about Jesus Christ. Everyone knows about Jesus Christ, right? So his name is well-known. But just because his name is well-known, that doesn't necessarily entail like belief or revival or anything like that. So here, his, his name is well-known, but here's some more similarity. Check this out, okay? So, and this is verse 14. People were saying, people were saying, well, who is Jesus? He's, he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. There's one option. John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in them. And we're going to talk about all these in depth. Number two, they're saying, well, he's Elijah. That's a, that's a good guess, isn't it? I mean, and we'll talk about this. Is that a good guess? He's, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's Elijah. Or verse 15 at the end, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So maybe he's another prophet. You also get this same dialogue taking place later on in Mark chapter 8 and also Matthew 16 in Caesarea Philippi when Christ asks his disciples. Remember this? Who do people say that I am? Who do people, who do people think I am? And then they tell them. Say, they say this exact same thing, right? Well, some think you're Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist. They do add Jeremiah, so a prophet of old. Some, some people think you're Jeremiah. But remember what Christ says. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? And so you have that same thing. This is like a prelude to what's actually going to happen with the disciples. But they're asking this. The question is in the air. Who is this guy? And so, first of all, let's talk about why do people think that he might be John the Baptist, okay? Now, the notions of this is, is, is really wild. Remember when Jesus was in Nazareth, Nazareth, his own hometown, and people are like, no, he can't be anybody special because we know who he is, we know where he works, everything else. Now it's saying we know he's somebody special, and he could be, I mean, it's like they want to believe everything in the world about him except the truth. Thinking about our culture again, right? Our culture is like, hey, he's a good teacher. He's this, you know, some people think he's, he's like this, this, this um, alien type of thing. You might not have heard that, but that's a new one where they're like, yeah, I think, I think like an alien came and the person of Jesus and, and he kind of like walked around and stuff and then he whoop, went back up, you know, so they're willing to believe everything except the truth. Here they're saying he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Okay, there's four reasons that I can come up with why they would think that Jesus is John. And I mean, they're not saying Jesus is like John. The idea is Jesus is John, raised from the dead. Why is that? Well, first of all, we saw this earlier with John the Baptist way back in chapter one, when John the Baptist is put down, that's really when Jesus's ministry begins. When he's put in jail, and John the Baptist even says, I must decrease, he must increase. So there's this thing where like John the Baptist goes down, Christ goes up. Okay, so that's the first thing. So that's and especially in these days, you know, 2,000 years ago, they don't have, the, the, we don't have accurate media either, but they certainly did not, they don't have pictures of John the Baptist everywhere. It's not like you had like this, this, this photograph of John that you're saying, no, I'm looking at Jesus, I'm not seeing the resemblance. You can't see that. Um, number two, they're both itinerant preachers. Their ministry is very similar. They both have disciples, and there's a lot of overlap between the disciples. Remember, some of Jesus' disciples used to be John's disciples. Some of John's disciples will go to Jesus. So there's overlap in the disciples. Third, though, they both preach the same message. They're both preaching repentance and the kingdom of God has come. That's what they're preaching. So there's overlap there. But fourthly, now think of this, right? They're cousins. And cousins do share similarities, especially in these days. Now think about it. How many people were actually getting very close to Christ or John the Baptist? I'm willing to bet not very many because the crowds were so numerous and so obsessed and so so um so adamant about being close to christ if you happen to be one of the people on the outskirts and there were most of the people were on the outskirts you're not going to get very close to jesus or john there's thousands of people wherever they go you can't you can't just like elbow your way in there it'd take a long time unless you're desperate like we see certain people so for the vast majority of people they've never been very close to jesus or john and so you can kind of see okay well I, you know, maybe, but here's the thing. Here's the, here's the kicker though, right? So he, it actually says John the Baptist has risen from the dead, which implies what? That they know he has been dead. They know that John the Baptist is dead. So that kind of like blows up the entire argument. But here's the thing on this, okay? The Jews at this time had come up with this superstition and Calvin calls it gross superstition. I love it. Gross superstition. This idea in the mindset of the Jews at this time in general was that people, especially if you were somebody great and influential and powerful and some kind of injustice has been committed against you, then you would be resurrected and, and um, that you would be not just resurrected, but that there would be a reincarnation three or four different times that was possible. So that's what they believed. And so this idea of John the Baptist being raised from the dead is kind of weird for us, but at that time in that culture, it's certainly not biblical. That's why Calvin, again, calls it gross superstition. That's what it is, right? It's just this, this, this kind of fanciful interpretation of who knows what and how they're coming to that conclusion. So I'm saying this because that's where they're getting this. Okay, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and I'll give you an illustration of this even in the Scripture. Now, the Scriptures don't teach this, but if you turn to Revelation chapter 13, there's this idea that's called um, Nero Redivivus. Nero (laughs) Redivivus, which means Nero raised, or Nero comes back to life, something like that. So Revelation 13, 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And that's just a little sly reference here, but that is a reference in the, Minds of most people, including commentators, and and just the general interpretation of Revelation up until like 1850. um, The most common interpretation was a more of a, um, um, well, there's a few different schools and and thoughts. But but one of the interpretations of this, and a popular one, was that this is talking about Nero. Because in the culture at that time, there was the idea that Nero was put to death, Nero was put down, he's dead, but he's going to come back. And so the scriptures are not saying that that's true. The scriptures are using this kind of wordplay to demonstrate who this person is when they're talking about who Nero is, because they're using code almost. But if you were living in that culture, you would know, hey, they're talking about Nero here. Okay, so this is a very common idea as far as being raised from the dead. Now let's look at the next thing, and we're going to come back to John the Baptist in a minute. The next person they say is Elijah, okay? It's not John the Baptist, it's Elijah. Now why would they call Jesus Elijah? We've already seen who the Elijah is. The Elijah figure is John the Baptist, not Jesus. And we saw that, remember, early on in John chapter 1 again. It's, getting, it's a verse out of Malachi 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So this is the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament. Before Matthew, there's 400 years. But in, Mar- in Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children unto their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And so when John the Baptist comes to earth, comes comes into his ministry, when John the Baptist goes forth, you remember what he's wearing. He's wearing camel cloth, camel garments, right? Camel clothing. He's eating wild honey. And we say, well, why is he doing that? Nobody else is doing that. What's he doing that for? Well, it's because it's a parallel to Elijah. What did Elijah wear? Elijah wore the same thing. And it tells us that he wore that in second kings remember we're talking that shows that it was unique otherwise it would not have even been mentioned notice we never know what jesus wears why because he wore what everybody else was wearing you don't have to you don't have to describe it the reason you describe this is because it's unusual elijah's clothing was unusual john the baptist's clothing was unusual john the baptist is making the point i am elijah who was supposed to come, not literally, it's not a one-to-one, but he's saying, I'm the Elijah that's promised in Malachi, the figure who was to come before the coming one, Jesus Christ. Okay, so they're confusing that. They're saying, well, well Jesus is Elijah, when, when in reality, John the Baptist is Elijah. Um, also, I mean, just, just again, there, there is overlap as far as the ministries of Christ and John the Baptist, so you can kind of see where that's coming from. Um, lastly, though, they say he's a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old, just generically, but again, going looking at, uh, looking at Matthew 16, you see the prophet that they're probably referring to here is, is Jeremiah. Well, why would they think Jesus is a Jeremiah? Well, let's, let's look at the similarities, okay? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Jesus, at times, we haven't seen it yet, but he's going to come to Jerusalem, and before he gets there, he's going to weep over Jerusalem. He was a man of emotion. He was a man of passion and compassion. And so there's similarities there as far as uh, Jeremiah was a man who wept. Jeremiah was a man of emotion. Jesus is the same way. They're both rejected prophets. If you read the, the, the book of Jeremiah, it's a, it's, it, it is it's a, um, I mean, it's, it is tough because you, you look at what happens to Jeremiah and Jeremiah is persecuted for, for his message. He's preaching, he's persecuted. Okay, so they're both rejected. They're both accused of being insane, of being mad. Jesus has been accused of being mad by his family and by others. Accused of being possessed by a devil Jeremiah their similarity there and then fourthly my favorite one Okay, remember when Jesus points to Jonah and says um, Speaking of his resurrection he talks about Jonah and he says as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days And then he speaks of the resurrection so will the Son of man be in the earth for three days, right? Well with Jeremiah if you read the, the story of Jeremiah the Jeremiah was at one point lowered into a well he's lowered underground and he's left there to die and he would have died if not for the mercy of a king the great and mighty king comes and commands his his servants to go and rescue Jeremiah out of this out of this uh, this cellar that he's in and so there's this idea of a prophet being lowered into a well and then being brought back up to life it's typology it points to what's going to happen to Christ but uh, but so so for some of those reasons you know the the idea of who Christ is it is in the air the conversations in the air it's exciting times because nobody really knows yet. You know, they're trying to figure it out. But here's the greatest part in a sense. I mean, it's 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 ironic, but greatest in the sense of so all these people are talking about it, but then you have King Herod in verse 16. King Herod, I mean, this guy's insistent. He's adamant, he's fanatical about it. He knows who Jesus is. And I you can tell that he's fanatical about it because it says he kept saying in the in the in the tense in the Greek there is is the uh, the imperfect tense. Which means it's continuous; it's all the time. So we kept saying this over and over and over again, telling you he knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was John, whom I beheaded. He's like that's—he's not—he's not Jeremiah, he's not Elijah, he's the guy whose head I just lopped off. Now here's the thing, right? And again, thinking of this culture, the Jewish culture in those days, this was not—this idea was not absurd. All right, so he really does think that this is John the Baptist. Now, you have to ask yourself this, okay? If you're in King Herod's shoes and you have just lopped off this guy's head and then shortly thereafter you realize the guy is is, is alive again, okay? You You know, what would be the correct response at that point? If that was really the case, right? The correct response would be to repent. And to realize, okay, there is a supernatural force working in this guy. And remember, now they're, now one thing that John the Baptist never did was miracles. And so now they're trying to figure out, because when you're talking about Christ, Christ is doing miracles. And so the idea in the Jewish culture was once they come back to life, they have even more power. That's why they're able to do miracles. So, John, just think about it from the perspective of King Herod here and ask yourself, why in the world, if he actually thinks that, why does he not make a beeline for John the Baptist say, John, I'm so sorry, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Please don't destroy me. But he never does that. In fact, he doubles down. And in Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, verse 31, somebody goes to Jesus And he tells Jesus, it was actually a Pharisee that says this. A Pharisee goes to Jesus, and he tells Jesus, Jesus, you got to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. All right? Now, who does Herod think he is? John the Baptist. Herod is doubling down. I mean, you got to be insane, right? You have to be insane. Your mind cannot be functioning correctly if you actually think the guy whose head I just lopped off is now raised from the dead, and I'm going to try to kill him again. And that right there is one of the points I want to make as far as sin goes, as far as if you think about how many times in our own lives, right? Herod, if he really believes this, why is he not, why doesn't he change course? If you think about the sin in our own life, man, we can say the same thing about so much of our sin in our own life. It's insane, right? And, of course, we can look at the big sin, and by all means, we, we, we can, you know, as far as um, some of the sins that are that are in our culture and, and the insanity of these sins and how people, instead of coming to their senses, and, and even if it looks like they do come to their senses, they're like, all right, you know what? That was dumb. I repent. I'm going to change course. They don't. They double down, right? And we can get on some really crazy stuff with, like, vaccines and all this as far as, like, why don't you just admit the truth and, and you know, admit, hey, I was wrong, right? I was wrong and come— but you don't see that. You double down on it. And that's just one, you know, you can look at um, you can look at let's say, let's say same-sex marriage, you can look at, of course, abortion, you can look at these big things in our culture, and we should. And we say, okay, once science comes out and realizes that a child at conception has its own DNA, has its own chromosomes, has its gender already assigned to it, right? Once, you know, everyone claims science, but once science comes out and says it. At that point, can we just say, hey, okay, we were wrong. Let's stop killing babies. Well, you don't see that, right? You double down and you come up with something more ridiculous. Um, and that's with anything. That, it's amazing, but it shows you the insanity of sin. And then if we look at our own lives, I was thinking earlier of, of just like the small things in our life. When I'm, when I'm, as a husband, right, you know, I got this stack of dishes in the kitchen. My wife is pregnant, by the way. I don't think I've told anybody. Except maybe, I don't know. So she's pregnant. She's like a month pregnant. And I wasn't supposed to say anything. So uh, anyways, <laughs> she'll, she'll, uh, she'll be okay, thanks. Um, so, because it's early on, you know, how all that goes. So anyway, so if I have a stack of dishes, and this is real time, right? So, And I know that, hey, I, I should go and, and, and do these dishes, especially now that my wife is pregnant. And we have two little kids. I, I should go and do those things, okay? This is one example, right? And I'm looking at those and I'm like, you know what? Nah, I'd rather, I'd rather do whatever I'm doing. Even if it's not productive, you know, I don't have to. It's not, I'm doing something just kind of like on some free time, right? That right there, in a sense, is the same insanity. I know, it's, I know it's good for me to go and do this. It's sinful, in a sense, for me not to help my wife out if I'm in that position to help her out and I'm called to do it, right? That's simple. But it shows you how deceitful it is, right? Rather than, and then she comes and she's like, hey, Ryan, you know, why don't you come and help me with the dishes? You know, I think that's wrong. And I'm like, it's not wrong. What are you talking about? But I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. And it's like John Owen says, now I'm using this very, we're like, oh, that's not a big deal. However, John Owen, if you ever read John Owen or any of the Puritans, when they talk about sin, man, it cuts you to the quick, you fall on your face because he talks about how even the smallest sin the smallest sin, if you take the smallest sin to its logical conclusion, it will destroy you and it will destroy everything around you. The smallest sin. And that is exactly what sin wants to do. Sin wants to sin wants to work in such a way, and of course we know that it's our flesh and the devil and all these factors that are working into it. But it wants to work in such a way where it doesn't just stop at you not doing the dishes. It wants to come and then all of a sudden it's like you're neglecting other things. You're, 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 you're avoiding other things. And then before you know it, it's like now you're, now you're neglecting your job. Now you're, now you're neglecting you know, these, these major things that God calls us to do, right? That's, what, that's what's going on here. So if you look at King Herod and you're like, man, what is this guy thinking? What is going on in his heart? The same thing that goes on in all of our hearts to the extent that we don't come and submit these things and give these things to Christ. That's just one example, though. You can have a strong conviction of something being wrong or being sinful or being an error, or whatever, however you want to phrase it. And yet, and yet, there's no change. There's nothing that changes. John or Herod, if anybody should say, I have totally messed up, John. It should be him, right? But he doesn't do it. He continues on his course. Just like Adam. Think about what Adam does. He takes a fruit, not a big deal bites into the fruit, and of course, everything comes under a curse. What's Adam's next response, right? Adam's next response should be, God, I messed up. I really messed up here, please forgive me. Instead, God comes walking in the garden, the cool of the day, calls out Adam, Adam, where are you? Why are you naked? Well, how'd you know that, right? Well, Adam, what'd you do? Well, I didn't do anything, she did it. And then it's like, what is going on here? That is the insidiousness of sin, how it works, the subtleness, subtleness of sin. The Bible calls it the deceitfulness of sin. You're like, so what are we supposed to do about it? Examine ourselves. All of us examine ourselves and and try to to find these areas where we are in just utter denial about reality when it comes to these sins in our life. And then put them to death. Mortify them like Christ calls us to do. Mortify them. Cut it off. And then move on. Okay? Um, The other thing to look at here is that False faith often often is the most imaginative or fanciful or speculative and I can tell you from i can 't even tell you how many evangelistic conversations you know you go on and, and you start talking to people about the faith and and I can ever it seems like nine out of ten times that you talk about about the Lord with somebody who says they're a Christian maybe maybe seven out of ten. They, they, you know, everything looks like, okay, at first it's like, oh, I love the Lord. And then you start talking to them. And then before you know it, you realize the gospel, the simple gospel message is not enough. They have to have something else. I'll give you an example. Rome is probably the best example I can think of. So if you think of what happens with Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, okay, what happens with the Roman Catholic Church? How can you explain the fact that now you have the Roman Catholic Church praying to dead people, um, thinking that little portions of wood or or you know icons things like that actually have some kind of potency um, how do you what what 's up with the cross thing where you think that that actually does something or the beads right you touch your beads and, and all where does that come from? That comes from the gospel not being enough so think about think about what's going on here right The excitement of the fact that John the Baptist or anybody who's a great person once you 're dead, you can be reincarnated. In three or four different manifestations of that reincarnation you're like man that is cool that is that is really exciting stuff that's kind of you know um a lot of times people are really obsessed with the book of enoch you'll hear that you know like the book of enoch and the watchers and all these like what do you that's why i was mentioning or alien stuff earlier you know you'll hear guys talking about you know these aliens and stuff you're like okay 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 what about the gospel right is the gospel enough or is it not What happens is in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul warns against going beyond what is written. If these guys, and I'm bringing this up because if they had just gone to the Scriptures and looked in the Scriptures about what was going on with this person and with his disciples and just studied the Scriptures, they would have found the truth. It's all in there. You have John the Baptist, you have this forerunner of the Messiah, then the Messiah is going to come, and then you're going to see what's going to happen to the Messiah. Eventually, he's going to suffer. He's going to be raised from the dead. That's all in the Old Testament, but they don't do that, right? They go beyond that, and again, that's why Calvin calls it gross superstition, and we have a ton of that floating around today, especially through like YouTube and stuff. I mean, it's so easy to go down a rabbit hole. I felt bad because on Tuesday night after the prayer meeting, I mentioned like ancient pre-Noaic civilizations. And, uh, and, and so this is two weeks ago at a Friday night study afterwards, this guy was, he was, you know, he was talking about, and he's a Christian, he's a, he's a good guy. And, and, um, um, some of what he was saying was, our, you know, it was like, all right. I mean, that's kind of interesting to think about. And that's what we're talking about Tuesday, as far as some of these ancient pre pre Noahic civilizations, how you had 3000 years between creation and Noah and they lived a long time. So could their technology have been, could it have been very advanced? Yes. We were thinking, yeah right but then you take that and extrapolate it and we we have this same guy this is uh, this is levin and he's talking about he goes from there to all of a sudden he's like yeah and 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 i think that demons manifest themselves in like bigfoot and the loch ness monster and, and and things like that once you hit that realm you're like all right man we've gone too far but what causes us to go too far is that there is an excitement about that right this 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 imagination this this kind of like oh this is kind of This is kind of interesting to like go down this route and to kind of, and then that's why I mentioned YouTube, man. If you type something like that into YouTube, you are in some serious weeds, but there's a ton of stuff out there that's utter nonsense. Why? Because it doesn't line up with scripture. And ultimately all these people that that were saying Jesus this, Jesus that, they're all wrong, right? So don't go past scripture. That's what's wrong with Rome. Rome went beyond scripture. The simple gospel was not enough. So that's why you have the Reformation coming in and saying, we need to go back to the scriptures. Get back to the simple gospel. Get, you know, be done with all of the all of the stuff in the worship service. All of, you know, the in the worship service in those days, they were kneeling at the altar. They were, of course, like they still do, um, you know, they were they were doing all kinds of there was a lot of superstition. And so the reformers come in, they say, we've got to get back to the simple gospel, the simple word of God, because too much has come in and cluttered it. That's what's going on here, and again, it comes in into our own lives, I think. It comes in, and we're all exposed to certain things like that. Also, the third thing on this, as far as Antipas, man, he's a really tragic character. He was obsessed, and this is some of his background historically. He was obsessed, and I mentioned he was obsessed to become a king, and it never happened. But you know what's ironic? Is while, while he is so obsessed to become king, I mean, the guy supposedly, according to accounts, he couldn't sleep. He was, he, was burnt. he couldn't eat because Rome would not recognize him as a king. Well, the irony of this is you have the king of kings on the ground right now as Herod is up at night wanting to be king. You have the king. But you notice the difference between King Herod and King Jesus. right? King Jesus, even when they're trying to force him to be king, Christ is like, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here for that yet. I don't want that yet. The same thing about Herod. Herod wanted Herod wanted to be popular. He wanted to be well known. He wanted it um, just like his dad. He was very concerned of what people thought about him, and it was to such an extent that that he was obsessive over it. And he would force it. You know, he would. And so here's the thing. I was thinking, right? So if you think about us, especially again in our culture, um, you know, social media feeds that. Media feeds that we have a lot of pressure, our jobs feed that everything in our I guarantee you every single person here has some kind of some kind of social ladder that 's in front of us and we're down here and there in whatever we are whether you 're whether you 're a minister whether you 're just a child there are there are certain pressures right to go up in the world to go up to scale this ladder and um you, you I, I think about like the celebrity preachers a lot and you, you in the sense of, you know, a lot of people give these guys a hard time or grief, let's say like Paul Washer or Bodie Bauckham. And, and it's like, you know, and it is true. There There is like this circuit, you know, where like every conference has the same guys and people complain about that. And I get it. It's like, yeah, I, I understand. At the same time, though, Paul Washer was not looking for that. Bodie Bauckham was not looking for that. They weren't obsessed with that, right? That wasn't their life as far as we know externally. That's not what they were seeking for. But in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, God blesses that ministry so that now, yes, they do have a certain amount of, of respect and notoriety and things like that, but they weren't seeking it. And so that's one example. You take another example where it's like you're at work and um, um, say you're, you're working hard, you're there all the time, you, you do what you're supposed to do. And, and let's say in God's providence, you get demoted, right? And you're like, what is this? You wanted a promotion and you get demoted. You go the other way and you're like, well, what's going on here? And so both of these, you know what the common denominator is in all of this? God's sovereignty. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about whether you're popular. Don't worry about who applauds you, who likes you, who doesn't like you. That's up to God. Our job is to be faithful in what role God has given us. Herod was more concerned with being popular than he was with being a godly ruler, a godly king. And it came to bite him in the end. And so whatever station of life God has placed us in, we're called to be faithful. Don't worry about like the noise. Don't worry about who knows about you, who doesn't know about you, the raise, the, the, the promotion, the demotion. Don't worry about all of that. That's up to God. And ultimately, you know, should it really change how you approach what you do? You know, in other words, and think about like in a church plant, we've talked about this, a church plant, the pressure is always, man, let's grow, let's grow, let's grow. We got to get more people. We got to get more people. Well, yeah, but that's up to God. If we have to change what we're doing in order to bring people in, we're in sin, right? Whereas if we're faithful to do what God tells us to do, to worship the way God tells us to worship, to preach the way God tells us to preach, to conduct ourselves and to to act and operate according to how God does it. Hey, if he wants to bless us with growth, praise God. If he doesn't, praise God. Right? That's how, man, our our, our mindset has to be that. Because we can make success an idol. Our culture tells us to make success an idol. Our culture tells us to make social media an idol. All of that, man. And Antipas had made all of this an idol. Everything we're talking about. So it's interesting, you know, because it's like, man, Antipas is an evil dude. But then you start looking at it and you break it down. You're like, man, I got a lot of Antipas in me. I got to watch this. Because if I was in Antipas's place, would I not act the same? Right? And then lastly, most importantly, let's look at this question, who is Christ, right? Because they're trying to figure out, well, who is he? And you're like, well, I know who he is. Well, how do you know who he is? And i praise God, right? How can we know who he is? Where do we look? I've already mentioned the scriptures, the word of God, um, biblical churches, sound Christians. Those are all places that you can look and you can discover who Christ is. I wanted, I wanted to point out. So this is this is from the the larger catechism, and I think it's so ironic. So if you've ever heard of this description of Christ as a prophet, a priest, and a king, a prophet, priest, and a king, where does that language come from, and why is Christ called a prophet, priest, and king? Most ironically, as I mentioned, the word irony is coming a lot in this in this whole thing because, okay, Christ is a prophet. Christ is a priest. Christ is a king. Okay, Antipas. And even Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a king, but he was subjugated to Christ. Christ is the king over all kings. Christ, there is no king other than Christ when you're talking about ultimately. And any king that is placed on, let's say, a throne or in the White House, they're there because Jesus Christ has placed them there and no other reason. So Christ is king of kings. He's king over all kings. But in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it also says this. Um, This is question 45 about... What does it mean that Christ is king or a king? It says this. It says Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. So God in his sovereignty, right? Sovereignty. What's that word of? That word is the word of monarchy. Christ, the sovereign king, comes in and and calls a people out of the world to himself, gives them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. He bestows saving grace upon his elect. He rewards their obedience. He corrects them for their sins. He preserves and supports them under all their temptations and sufferings. He restrains and overcomes all their enemies. That's a good king, right? A good king overcomes all his his subjects' enemies. He powerfully orders all things for his own glory and their good and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. The irony, again, of King Herod thinking I'm going to go and kill Jesus. I'm going to kill John the Baptist, when in reality, he's the one being judged. All these kings on the throne today, these antiposes all over the world today. I mean, it's very hard to find any ruler that's actually a a biblical ruler. All these rulers are under God's judgment. And they're going to stand before the king of kings one day. They're going to be judged by this Christ. And then secondly, how is Christ a prophet? I mean, everyone's saying he's a prophet. They're actually right about that. Christ is a prophet. But in what way, right? So Christ is a prophet and that he reveals to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration the whole counsel or will of God. The will of God. What do we call Christ? We call Christ the word of God. A prophet is someone who declares the word of God to the people. Christ is the prophet. He is the word of God. He is the the, the revelation of God in the flesh and also in, in his actions and also his words. He is the prophet. And then lastly, ironically, you know, these priests, they're all jealous of Christ. The high priest, as we go into Mark, we're going to see this more and more. The high priest, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're all in the priestly class and they hate Christ. They do not like Christ. Why? Well, they're jealous of him. They don't like what he's up to. They don't like what he's doing. They don't like that he's calling them out. But Christ operates as, in Hebrews, you really see this, he is the high priest. And he's the high priest in a sense because, number one, he offers himself. Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God. All the, all the goats and the, the bulls and all these animals, that were they, they, they were called to be unblemished, unstained. They would bring them, they would slaughter it, they would bring the blood, they would sprinkle the blood. Christ himself does that on the cross. That's how our sins are forgiven. So he's a priest in that way, to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people, but also in making continual intercession for them. Think of this. These high priests of these days, of Christ's days, man, they who were they making intercession for? The people of that time only, if that. Most of them were corrupt, so they weren't even doing that. But here we have a high priest who this very moment as I'm preaching, as you're listening, This very moment, Christ is interceding on our behalf at the throne of God for us individually. That's what's cool about salvation. It's not just like generically, hey, Christ died for his people. Yes, he did. But specifically, he died. If you're in Christ, he died for you. And he's making intercession for you right now because he cares about you. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. And he's a good king. He's going to keep you. What you need to do, as far as keep 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 going, um, and so next week as we look at, at what Herod does with John the Baptist, uh, we're gonna we're gonna especially see John the Baptist's response. We'll look more of some some uh, some insight into the thinking and the the mechanism behind King Herod's evil, and then also we're gonna see how that has an effect on Christ's ministry. It really does. Christ's Christ is going to, to in a sense, redirect once, once he finds out that John the Baptist's head has, has been lopped off. And so um, there's, there's still ramifications, even to this very day, as far as the course and the direction of Christ's ministry goes. And so we'll look at some of that. But be, you know, be encouraged. If, look, if, if, we're, if we're in Christ, we know that every single sin that we've ever committed has been paid for by Jesus Christ, past, present, future, because of this work of Christ. But we also know that we still have some of the herod antipas in us that needs to be worked out that has to be crucified mortified put to death it has to right because we haven't achieved the goal we haven't reached the goal yet so it's not like hey if if i don't do this i'm not saved no it's that i want to do this to be holy as christ is holy as god is holy i want to do this to imitate christ i want to do this because christ says to mortify the flesh to lop your arm off to pluck your eye out whatever's causing the sin in your life so Um, examine ourselves, but also as you're interacting with people, tell them who the true Christ is because they have some really weird notions that are coming from all different directions. It's like, hey, I'll believe Christ is anybody but the Son of God and God the Son and the one I, I have to submit to, right? But in telling them, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So that's the only option they have as far as being converted. So let's pray. Oh, Christ, we are thankful that you are our king today. We thank you that you're a good king, that you're not a corrupt king, that, that you are the epitome of justice and righteousness and, and goodness, and, and you care for your subjects, and you, um, you crush our enemies on our behalf and for us. And, and, and even now, O oh Christ, we thank you that you are helping us and working in us to put to death the, the deeds of the flesh. Lord I pray specifically for all of us Lord that your people would help uh be helped in 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 putting our sins to death Lord help us to take heart to take courage that in your grace that you've opened our eyes to who the true Christ is that we no longer have to invent something or or come up with our own speculations about who Christ is Lord Lord give us all grace to to settle in the, in the gospel, and to settle in your scriptures, that your scriptures would be enough, that your word would be enough, that the simple worship and gospel would be enough, O oh God, that we wouldn't go further than, than, than what you've given us in scripture. Lord, we pray that you would be with those around us who are lost, and that you would use us to proclaim the true Christ to them, Lord, and that they would be called out of darkness, that they would see the truth and the life in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that name. We know that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We know that 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 is the name above all names. And Lord, we thank you that though Christ's name is is known far and wide in the West today and even throughout most of the world, Lord, we know that so many false Christs have presented themselves and false gospels. So Lord, have mercy on this whole world. Have mercy, O God. We know that you're a God who has given the nations to Jesus Christ, that he owns them all. And so, Lord, we pray that that Christ the King would demonstrate his, his power, his glory, his might in our midst in Clovis, and, and also that he would continue using us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.